It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right, believe it or not, it's time for another Bible Geek. As you know, it's been a while because I uh, had uh, one computer croak, and it's been difficult adjusting to the new one. Well, actually, not a new one. I kind of inherited this one. Uh, but uh, a lot of confusion, plus I've been kind of uh, busy doing these um, nifty uh, myth vision shows with uh, Derek Lambert. We did a great one today with uh, the absolute genius of biblical studies, Russ, Russell Merkin. Uh, you ought to see that one uh, if you haven't already. And uh, I've also been doing a lot of reading and research for my book, Judaizing Jesus. And, uh, and there's other things too, but these are biggies uh, who are, uh, which are uh, consuming a lot of time. It's hard to know which uh, ball to juggle next, but I'm finally back uh, in geek territory. And with that, let's say we uh, open the old rain barrel. Uh, howdy, friend. This is Bob. A great name. No, of course. There's something about that name. This is kind of a long one. It's interesting, though. He says, I've been binge listening to your delightful Bible Geek podcast, and I've heard you mention hallucinogens a couple of times over the years. I don't have any evidence for the use of hallucinogens in the Bible, though it struck me that given your views on such things, you may not have tried any such substances yourself. You're, you're correct. I have not. Uh, with that in mind, I just wanted to add some color commentary. Chemicals like THC, DMT, LSD, psilocybin, etc. all have different, though related, and overlapping effects. Similar effects can be achieved through holotropic breathing, uh, staying in the complete dark for about a week, uh, think caves, temples, and for those practiced enough through various kinds of meditation, especially when combined with extended water fasting uh, for weeks. As you know, some people have abnormalities that cause them to have hallucinations too, whether schizophrenia or just milder schizotypal personality some kinds of seizures, and so on. At least some natural-born mystics quite likely fit into this medical category. The brain generates at least a small amount of DMT naturally, and it's tempting to uh, speculate that some mystics may simply have greater natural production of this chemical, and or they have accidentally found ways to trigger its production through rituals. This isn't as crazy as it might sound at first. No, it's, it doesn't at all sound crazy. One interesting source of hallucinogens is bread, especially rye bread. Uh, there's a fungus called ergot that sometimes fall, uh, sometimes grows on this 
this plant, which is where LSD originally came from. There have been a few times in history where it appears quite a few people, for instance, St. John's Fire, had hallucinogenic experiences from eating rye bread, which we can reasonably infer was because the rye used to make the bread had this common fungus and it contaminated the bread-making environment. Given my experiences with meditation and various chemicals, I think it's a near certainty that many of the religious figures throughout history were hallucinating based on the descriptions they provide. I can't be sure whether they got there via a medical problem or meditation or medicine, though one way or another they got there. If you're ever bored, look up the commonalities described by a large fraction of DMT users. Search DMT aliens and you'll immediately find... I saw that recently, so one, one site on that. Uh, you'll immediately find countless similar descriptions of the veil of reality being pulled back to reveal a different dimension uh, where there are beings of superior intelligence or spirituality to talk to. It's deeply fascinating how similar many of these reports are about the other side, and these commonalities almost certainly inform the visions of at least the non-trivial subset of mystics throughout the ages, biblical and otherwise. Incidentally, I think the structuralism paradigm applies to hallucinations, though only roughly. The similarity in experiences, especially specific visual phenomena, certain shapes, etc., is strongly suggestive of there being a way of activating the brain in a certain pattern through these substances, which is common from one person to the next, despite wide variance in life experiences. I'm definitely not saying that's where all religion comes from, or all of the Bible, or all God stories, etc. There are certainly many different and partially overlapping explanations for these things. Though I say with little uncertainty that hallucinations are one source of religious experiences and visions and prophecy and the like, one interesting aspect of many hallucinogenic experiences is the feeling of knowing something you have no way to know. Sometimes you will feel a profound sense of certainty in knowing what is good, what the outcome of a future event will be, etc. This knowing feeling, gnosis, can be incredibly intense and profound, beyond words, ineffable. The same can be said for feeling connected to the universe, in parenthesis, and quotes, God, uh, intense feeling of love for all, etc. And I think these sorts of subjective experiences can lead people to believe bizarre things if they aren't able to approach their own experiences with great skepticism, which is not exactly the defining trait of mystics through the ages. Uh, if you filter a run-of-the-mill experience on a hallucinogenic substance through a Bronze Age worldview, I think you'd almost certainly end up with something a person of that time would describe as a religious experience of deep significance, like experiencing God firsthand. I say that with great confidence, because even today that's what many people say about their experiences. Cheers! Yeah, that's really interesting. I knew this guy who uh, was uh, an apologist. I cannot think of his name now, but I guess I probably shouldn't. 
even if I could. Um, but he um, said that he had taken drugs, I guess, fairly often and in, in his pre-Christian days, and that he expected he would find himself merged with the Brahman, but instead he uh, felt uh, the, that he was encountering the God of the Bible and uh, a whole other entity uh, that, he, that he was not identical with. And uh, and this converted him to evangelical Christianity. Uh, certainly, one of the least typical uh, of uh, t testimonies. Uh, so, who knows what's happening there? Uh, I, as I say, I have never tried this, and uh, don't uh, really want to. Uh, life is fun and interesting uh, enough for me with, without this. Um, I'm not condemning anybody just not my thing but this is a, a very very helpful commentary you've given fellow bob i appreciate that so uh let's say let's uh, i guess the problem i have with uh when some people try to use drugs to explain uh like the pillar of fire and exodus and so on saying well i bet you the uh the people all hallucinated that because of ergot on the manna or something. I feel like, no, uh, you're just committing the same error of the old-time rationalists. You're willing to accept that uh, the Israelites did see a pillar of fire, so how are we going to explain it scientifically? Whereas you don't need to bother with that. It's, uh, it's not a historical memory. It's just a legend. Anyway... Okay, we got a few of them from uh, the great Benjamin Abelo. He says, I read in Wikipedia that Mark's gospel likely was written in either Rome or the province of Syria, maybe Antioch. Does that sound right to you? Any suggestions for things I might read to help me understand why these two places are mentioned and which is most likely? Your own thoughts on that are most welcome, too, of course. Well, um, mine are all secondhand. Uh, I think you can make a pretty darn good case for Matthew having been written in Antioch. Uh, but with, uh, with uh, Mark, I, I do remember that... Oh, boy, I don't think I can remember the, the title, but uh, Howard Clark Key, K-E-E, -E, uh, who was a professor of mine at uh, Boston University where I especially took his course. Uh, and uh, he, he said he thought that Mark was written in Syria because of the particular descriptions of agriculture in it. Uh, I don't find that very helpful because I am not so sure what description there is of agriculture and geography are are accurate, and uh, I have a hunch that means it was written by somebody who did not live in that milieu, but if, if there's a case to be made for an Antiochian or Syrian Zitzimleben uh, for Mark, I would say Key is probably the one to, uh, to go with. Um, as for a Roman origin, I guess the best book would be um, which I see was by uh, Benjamin W. Bacon, who wrote, um, I think it's 
is Mark a Roman gospel, or possibly was Mark a Roman gospel? I think it was a special issue of, of, of the Harvard Theological Review. But if you look up uh, Benjamin uh, W. Bacon, just like the sizzling kind, on Wikipedia it would probably list uh, his works, of which there were many. I, I've uh, always found Bacon's work to be uh, very informative. He was like a leading uh, American purveyor of the higher criticism uh, in the early 20th century. He wrote a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, so I would say those would be two good ones to, to read. Um, see, a uh, similar question, uh, Benjamin says, I read that Matthew's gospel was likely written in Antioch. Does that sound right to you? And do you have any suggestions for things I might read on this issue? Uh, yeah, as I intimated before, I uh, think the arguments are pretty weighty, though, of course, all these things are just fragments uh, of evidence, and, uh, you know, you have to make of them what you can and uh, remain tentative on all this. But uh, the fact that Matthew is interested in um, the Gentile mission, uh, as, as I have argued in an essay before, I think from what little we hear about the Antiochene church in Galatians and the Gospel of Matthew, they seem to have been interested in uh, missions. They seemed to be multilingual and multi-ethnic, meaning there are uh, Jews and Gentiles, uh, Aramaic and Greek speakers, and that uh, they had different views. Some opposing the Gentile mission, some uh, tolerant of it, and some enthusiastic about it. Now, they're in the Matthean community, the, those for whom the Gospel of Matthew was written, um, they uh, are uh, interested in mission, you can tell, because not only does the Gospel pretty much reproduce the Markan, um, mission charge, you know, don't take uh, uh, two cloaks, uh, don't take any money in your wallet, etc., etc. Uh, that's, uh, nobody would, would include such a thing if they didn't mean it to be relevant to the readers because they need mission instructions. Uh, and uh, also, you've got the Great Commission at the end of the book, go into all the nations, baptizing them in my name, and so on and so on. Uh, but the other side of the coin is uh, at the not-so-great commission in chapter 10. It says, don't go into any way of the Samaritans or the Gentiles. Uh, you won't have time to finish covering the towns of Israel before the Son of Man appears. Uh, so there were, there were at least these two uh, positions, which strikes me as surprisingly parallel to a, a Calvinist controversy, I think, in the 19th century, where uh, some Presbyterians, for example, wanted to embark on world missions, which many churches were doing, but others said, no, God knows his elect. He'll, he'll get to them with the gospel one way or the other. He doesn't need your bumbling efforts. Well, the same sort of a thing was going on, but it wouldn't have been if missions hadn't been high on the list of somebody's priorities there. Well, uh, also, uh, the, uh, well, the, the multilingualism. Uh, Matthew, whoever he actually was, 
certainly knew Hebrew, Greek, and uh, Syriac, uh, which I think is just Northern Aramaic. Uh, how do we know that? Well, because he can choose between different versions of the Bible uh, to get closest to the wording he wants. And uh, so you find, uh, like a cheat by Jow in the story of uh, Judas betraying Jesus for 30 shekels of silver and him, what he does with the money, uh, he's taking part of it from the Syriac version of Zechariah, part of it from the, the Hebrew. Uh, one of them, I forget which without looking it up again, says, uh, the Lord said to me, take the money at which you were valued by the, the shepherds of Israel, whatever, the 30 pieces of silver. And that's the only place we ever hear about 30 pieces of silver, by the way, and no, no other gospel has it. Uh, and uh, cast it into the temple. But in the other one, it says, ah, uh, jeez, uh, what is it? The, into the treasury. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, well, he does both, right? He throws it into the temple and they put it into the treasury. Uh, and uh, and so forth, and buy the field of blood with it, etc. Uh, so uh, we know they were multilingual, at least some of them. And uh, so uh, it seems to me that that ain't much, but it's pretty significant, and there's really no other uh, decent suggestion. Some would say it was, Matthew was written in uh, northern Galilee. Well, that's some of the same um, factors would be present, but Antioch seems to me to be the uh, the most likely by a hair, let's say. Oh, let's see, let's see. Uh, three, do you have any sense uh, as to what extent Antioch, or more broadly the province of Syria, would have been influenced by Roman culture, especially uh, laws of patria potestas? I don't even know what that means. Uh, but yeah, there certainly was Roman uh, presence in Syria and, and had been for a good while. Um, but th this specifically, I don't know. Uh, then finally, any idea to what extent Paul was reared in Roman or Roman-influenced culture as opposed, say, to Hellenistic Jewish? I think it's more likely that uh, the Pauline literature comes from Gentiles or Jewish Gnostics. And uh, this is a big problem because the business about Paul being uh, the student of Gamaliel and uh, being a Pharisee, it, it, all of that seems dubious to me. And uh, Or that he grew up in Galilee, which St. Jerome fished up from someplace. All of this is, is very doubtful. If, if Paul was the same as Simon Magus, you know, th then you really got a, a, an issue. But from what Josephus tells us about him, it would seem to be that he was a Hellenistic Jewish Gnostic. And uh, seems that uh, whether you're talking about him or the more familiar figure of Paul, uh, Chaim Maccabee uh, made a pretty good case that Paul does not read like a rabbinic Jew, a Pharisaic Jew, and wasn't. Uh, he says this in two of his fascinating books, The Myth Maker and Paul and Hellenism. And so I would suggest those. Uh, then, of course, you can read my uh, 
cinder block of a book, um, The Amazing Colossal Apostle, where I get into some of this stuff. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, let me do one more. I'm kind of pressed for time, but I did want to squeeze in a, at least a brief geek tonight. This is uh, 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 from uh, Luther. By the way, Luther and I are going to be co-hosting uh, a uh, podcast uh, soon, I think once a month, um, uh, called The New Areopagus. So we're going to record our first one uh, uh, in, in about a week or so. I'll try to let you know more about that. It says, I've got another question from Raymond Brown's Anchor Bible series volume, An Introduction to the New Testament. Of course, the main importance of that book is that he mentions the Journal of Higher Criticism in it. Just kidding about that. That's true, but that's certainly not the most important thing in the book. Uh, in his analysis of Acts, Brown says that uh, agram, uh, agramatoi, unlettered in Acts 4.13, probably means uh, the disciples were, quote, not formally educated in religious matters of the law of Moses, uh, end quote, from the perspective of the Sanhedrin, and that, quote, an exaggerated interpretation would portray the disciples as illiterate page 291. Um, uh, Bart Ehrman, I believe, referencing that same word has made quite a big point of him indeed being illiterate. Do you think Brown's understanding, based on the word's usage elsewhere, or in this situation specifically, could be correct? Or is this an example of his faith shading his scholarship? Well, I kind of, like, there are, there are continuing big debates over whether uh, very many Galilean or Palestinian Jews could have been literate. Uh, and uh, Richard Horsley makes a big deal out of this, for instance. He says that uh, there's no way they could have really gotten any kind of a education in reading, but that uh, no, I'm, I'm, I think that he does say that, but I, I'm thinking of uh, Bruce Chilton, in fact, in his book, Rabbi Jesus, which strikes me as a really weird book. Uh, in that, he says that, yeah, uh, they were illiterate, but uh, they probably knew a lot of scripture by heart. And, uh, and he has some reasons for that, having to do with the Aramaic Targums and stuff. Um, but uh, I know it's been debated. We used to hear about this in the Jesus Seminar. I don't know that we have enough information to say, but I kind of go with Raymond Brown on this simply because this is a parallel with one of the very many Luke Acts, Gospel of John parallels. When we hear this in uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is teaching in uh, Jerusalem, and uh, the uh, crowd says uh, they were amazed because he had no learning in the Torah, of course, they mean, and yet here he is talking about it and teaching about it. I, I, that isn't a question of whether he can read, uh, but rather did he study in, uh, in the Torah, uh, and uh, is something that you know most people did not have the leisure to do. Well, he didn't, they said, uh, but it's you'd think he had. Well, I get the impression that uh, that the acts scene with the with Peter and the others is a kind of a doublet of this, and therefore 
probably is intended to mean the same thing, that how come this guy is eloquent in his religious convictions? He's just a bumpkin from Galilee. That, I think, doesn't really bear on whether he could read or not. Uh, I mean, if he was a fisherman, of course, he sold fish in the marketplace. Didn't he keep receipts and stuff? Mustn't he have been able to read to do that? I don't think that's the issue. I think it's supposed to mean the same thing it does in uh, in uh, the Gospel of John in the same darn situation. And, of course, the point of that, and we have similar things, like, oh, Joseph Smith couldn't have uh, written the Book of Mormon. Uh, he couldn't have been that educated. Yeah, he wrote it. Come on. Uh, uh, or uh, the prophet Muhammad. He must have been inspired by the angel Gabriel because he's just a camel herder. Uh, how could he get that kind of elegance? You see, it must be uh, divine inspiration. And uh, you, that's not; those are not even the only examples, but it's a way of saying that, uh, oh yeah, it's got to, you know, heaven, what is it? Uh, flesh and blood is not revealed it to you, but rather my father in heaven. Right, it's, it's that kind of thing. So uh, I think probably Brown is right, but there is no way to know. That's for darn sure. Uh, let's see. All right, one more from James the Jest Vegetarian. Uh, he says, I'm fortunate enough to own a copy of Revolution in Judea by High Maccabee. Alas, like many great books in this field, it has gone out of print and become rare and expensive. Folks, if you can find a copy at a reasonable cost, pounce on it. Uh, Maccabee has an interesting theory that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem took place not in the spring around the time of Passover, but rather in the autumn during Sukkot, uh, the uh, Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the crowd cries out Hosanna, which has a special liturgical use in tabernacles and in no other Jewish holiday. Right, this is from uh, Psalm 118, I think. Uh, it speaks of the, the procession up to the horns of the altar and all of that, and crying out Hosanna. Also, Sukkot is a royal festival. Tabernacles was the old New Year festival. Well, really still is, kind of. It's in the autumn anyway, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and uh, it was the renewal of kingship when they had kings. Okay, uh, The king traditionally enters the temple court and reads the paragraph, the so-called paragraph of the king, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. Further, Maccabee feels that too many events have been compressed into the brief time of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the crucifixion. An inquiry by the high priest, uh, the Sanhedrin trial, the trial before Herod Antipas, uh, the trial before Pilate, the cleansing of the temple, the preaching in the temple, the Last Supper. It makes much more sense if these numerous events took place stretched out between an autumn and a spring. How about the palm branches on Palm Sunday? Uh, in the spring in Jerusalem, there are only withered sticks, not the full branches of the autumn. What about the fig tree, cursed for not bearing fruit? No one expects a fig tree to bear fruit in the spring. That happens in the fall. What do you think about Maccabee's idea? Well, I do think that uh, that um, sequence of the triumphal entry does reflect and may have been built on 
uh, the Psalm 118, which, as you say, would have been chanted by the crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles, that doesn't mean it's historical. Whoever wrote this up may not even have known that, but it seemed to them appropriate to the situation of Jesus coming in at the head of this parade and uh, the branches and uh, all that stuff. And um, so it, it's hard to know really how much history there is. But if you assume that these events happened, and, and one of them that almost certainly did not is the trial before Herod Antipas, which has just been which is just the version of the trial before Pilate that Luke got from another source, and he wanted where uh, uh, Herod Antipas was the one who condemned Jesus to death, and he didn't want to skip either that or Mark's version, so he clumsily combined them. But at any rate, the rest of them, uh, yeah, E. Earl Ellis uh, said that he thought uh, that. Uh, it would make more sense if, if there were more days in this, at least uh, a week or so, that uh, to, to fit in all these things. I think he and Haim Maccabee, I've had the great pleasure of uh, meeting both, uh, both great scholars. Uh, uh, they, uh, I don't know if they were even aware of each other's work at that point, but uh, yeah, that would make sense. Though I have to admit that raises my uh, alarm about harmonizing that if that this is supposed to be taken as it is written as fact but the traffic jam of events imply that uh well it's like the the remember the tv show 24 you're supposed to believe that all of the things that happened on every episode uh, happened in one day uh, seems pretty hard in one hour uh, and that the whole season was one 24-hour day. That seemed a little hard to buy, right? It's just a fictional gimmick. I think that's what this is uh, and uh, that there really isn't any history to it. Uh, so uh, anyway, just uh, my uh, take on it. Uh, do I dare squeeze another one here? Uh, oh, well, yeah, here's one more from Luther. What the heck? Uh, I'm still working through Raymond Brown's uh, introduction to the New Testament. I'm only just finishing Luke, meaning I got a ways to go as he plows through the entire New Testament. My question, predictably, is about Luke. In discussing authorship, Brown references the old line that Luke was a physician. A footnote says that W.K. Hobart was the great proponent of the idea, citing an 1882 work, uh, and that Harnack was convinced. Yet Brown himself seems skeptical, uh, if I read between the lines. Can you explain a little bit about where the idea comes from or how it gains such traction? I know supposedly Luke uses some terms that contemporaneous physicians might have used, but Fitzmyers' book on Acts talks about how he also uses appropriate seafaring navigational terminology in the book. Doesn't that make him a sailor, just someone who can use or just someone who can use his sources? Yeah, uh, this was uh, this has been thoroughly debunked, uh, and it's it is surprising that Harnack was taken in by this, but it was just a kind of unwitting selection bias. It, yeah, there are a bunch of uh, medical terms in it, but um, 
Henry Cadbury, in his doctoral dissertation, exploded this and uh, showed how, through a, a search of all sorts of contemporary literature, everybody knew these these uh, medical terms that were used as metaphors and all that, as they are today, and that uh, there was no question of most of these authors being a physician or not, so there was no real reason to think Luke was. In fact, the saying went around among scholars, it's too bad that Cadbury had to get his doctorate by depriving Luke of his. So yeah, there really is absolutely no reason, uh, except, well, I guess the controlling thing is that uh, in Colossians, it mentions Luke the physician. And I said, oh, well, there's a gospel according to Luke and Acts apparently is by the same author. That's not part of the original gospel text, right? That is an editorial uh, tag that uh, they had to apply, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, once people, once churches had collections of more than one gospel. Hitherto, in church, they would say, now reading from the gospel, but once you had even two Gospels, you had to decide uh, how to refer to one of them and not the other, and so they eventually picked these names. I can explain why, as I have before, uh, why they got these names, but it, it really has nothing to do with that, and I think this is just kind of plausible but demonstrably false apologetics. Uh, there, there really is no reason to think that... Uh, the author of Luke and Acts was a uh, was a medical doctor. Oh, now if his name was Leonard McCoy or something, that might be different. But well, I better get a going. I'm sorry I was a short geek, but I've talked pretty fast, so maybe I squeezed a lot in. I will try to quickly get back and do another one of these things to atone for my long absence, and uh, shouldn't have that problem anymore. So thank you for being with me on the Bible Geek, and I will shortly uh, do a Lovecraft Geek and a Human Bible to try to, to atone. So thanks for being with me. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.